I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. There's now a sense that corporations have more credibility and that they are active players in the world. And therefore, if they weigh in on something, it has significance. Companies used to think that silence was golden. Now, more speaking up and taking a stand on all kinds of issues. For better or worse. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Big business used to stay out of the big issues. Staying neutral meant they didn't tick off any customers. It was like Michael Jordan's famous line about staying out of politics. Hey, Republicans buy sneakers too. So what changed? Also today, getting on a plane isn't always a vacation. You line up at security, you line up at departures, then there's the tyranny of the overhead bin and the fight to find space for your bag. So what if airlines could make flying better by charging for carry-on? Up first, around the country, small businesses are facing a big question. Who wants to run them? Remember when you were in your 20s and the best idea ever was opening a bar with your friends? Then you could hang out forever. You get older, maybe you know someone who opens a small business, and you see the reality of what it takes to run one. The long hours, dealing with staff, making payroll every month. It's stressful. And Ellis Cho, it looks like fewer people are doing it. <laughs> yeah, Starting and running a business, right, is not for the faint of heart. It is hard work. I grew up in a family business, so I kind of know. What was the family business? My mom had this little coffee shop, and yours truly had to get up at 5 in the morning every weekday to go and help her out. But you learned the value of hard work, Alice Cho. <laughs> okay, I did. It would have been better if I got paid. But anyways, <laughs> it's not something a lot of people want to do, right? The Business Development Bank of Canada put out a report recently. And compared to 20 years ago, we have 100,000 fewer entrepreneurs in this country. That's a pretty big drop. It is. A lot of business owners in Canada are getting ready to retire over the next decade. And not a lot of younger people are interested in taking over or starting their own businesses. Kind of like this family I met in Cochrane, Alberta just outside Calgary. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I'll take you right here. Fiona Sharman runs a pet store there. So when we first bought the store, we thought it was going to just stay this little cute little postage stamp store and we would have fun with it. They sell pet food, treats, collars. It's a busy shop. Customers were coming in with their pets before the doors were even open. Do you have air 
Her daughter, Christine, is 38, and she's worked in the shop for more than 10 years. Uh, the goal was that my mom would step away and I would take over those shares. I was all over that idea. Um, I felt that this was my future. This was my plan. I put all my eggs in this basket. She was supposed to take over the business this year so her mom could retire. But over the last couple of years, I have decided it's not really something I want to do anymore. Uh, it's become too, too overwhelming and too stressful to want to own a business anymore. Right on cue. She's overwhelmed. Phone rings. <laughs> like I said, it's a, it's a busy store. She used to love running the business, you know, enjoyed the customers coming in with their pets. But the last few years have taken a real toll. The pandemic happened. Staff shortages. Supply chain problems. And those long 12-hour days. I've actually pushed through the grit to the point where I've involved myself so much into my business and made my business my life to the point that now I don't have a life. I am now, I'm now struggling with health issues because of it. And you can't necessarily go on a stress leave when you own your business. Doesn't sound like she's having a whole bunch of fun. The last time she took a vacation was four years ago. You know, not everybody wants to sacrifice that much. And our ideas around work are changing, especially for younger people, which is typically the time when you start up a business. Beth Struckle teaches business at the University of North Carolina, and she says millennials are just more focused on work-life balance. And this comes from a number of things. One is that they, they saw their parents, uh, you know, being workaholic and working crazy hours. They didn't want that. And then they saw corporate America not being loyal to their parents uh, with the recession of 2008 as an example. And therefore, they look at that and they say, well, that's not what I want. I don't want to work that hard. I want more uh, work-life balance. And again, that's uh, not something that would be common to an entrepreneur where they are uh, focused on, you know, perseverance and um, tenacity at all cost. Kind of sounds like she's blaming, you know, those darn lazy millennials for not opening up businesses. Well, there are millennials who have opened up businesses, clearly. But two decades ago, three out of a thousand people would have launched a business in Canada. Today, it's only one. Okay, that's a pretty significant drop. It is, but there are a lot of factors. First of all, millennials, they carry a lot of debt. More student loan debt than previous generations. Then there's the cost of housing. Plus, the job market is hot. There are a lot of jobs out there. So, you know, there's less incentive to take that risk and go out on your own. And on top of all that, Pierre Claroux, the chief economist at BDC, says it's just way more complicated to start a business today. You know, 20 years ago when you started, let's say, a retail store, you basically find a, a, a location and uh, you buy some furniture or some equipment and you can sell. Well, today you have to do that, but you also have to have... Uh, to sell online, or at least to have a presence online. So when you start from zero and you have to put all this together, it's more complicated than it used to be. Yeah, 20 years ago, you didn't need an e-commerce website. Now, if your app doesn't work, customers aren't going to be happy. <laughs> exactly. And there's another reason why people may not want to put themselves out there. It's the size of the competition. Existing companies in Canada are getting bigger and that makes it tough for startups to get into the market and, and compete. So big companies are crushing the little guys? Or they're buying them up before they have a chance to grow. 
but we do still have businesses doing things, employing people. Does it really matter if we have fewer entrepreneurs? Yes, it does. According to Pierre Claroux, he says new businesses bring new ideas to the table, new services, new ways of doing things. And startups also push mature companies to be more efficient because when you have more competition in the market, well, everybody's, you know, is forced to innovate to do better. So he's drawing a pretty straight line between entrepreneurs and more choices, lower prices, better service. Exactly. You also get this made-in-Canada economy. That's how Simon Gaudreau sees it. He's the chief economist at CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He says entrepreneurship helps give a city its unique character. Do we want uh, a society that is just, or an economy that is just based on big box stores and brands from abroad, like in the future? Or do we want like a emerging strong companies that are from Canada or even local, local shops also that make our neighborhood different? Okay, this is the lobbyist for independent businesses really taking up for independent business. Fair enough, but but it does sound like he's not a fan of a shoppers on every corner of every city. No, he thinks more variety is good for the economy and for neighborhoods. But as you're saying, we have fewer young people out there looking to run businesses. Yeah, that's what the numbers show, right? Look at Christine and Cochran, who was supposed to take over the pet store from her mother. What's going to happen to their store? They're still trying to figure it out. At one point, they were looking at potential buyers, but they didn't find the right fit. So Christine is working on an exit plan. And for now, she's just trying to make more time for herself. So I'm trying to work-life balance by working from home. <laughs> um, but I, I personally, am, I'm going to really try and, and let go of some things. I'm going to really start focusing on my health and trying to figure out how I can keep that balance. So as she figures this out, where does this leave her mom? Fiona? Fiona still enjoys the business, but she's 65. And without her daughter, she doesn't know what the future looks like. I, I wanted to go down to like about a three-day work week. I don't want, I don't want to stop working. Um, I just wanted to go down to a three-day work week or two. But uh, instead, I'm working the next six days in a row. So... <laughs> I'm just going to keep plugging along. It, it is what it is. Someone's still got to sell that pet food. Thanks, Alice. You're welcome. This is The Cost of Living on your radio, by podcast, and on Sirius Channel 169. I'm Paul Habershrood. Getting on a plane isn't always the height of relaxation. You rush to the airport, wait in a long security line, you stand in another line to get on the plane, then finding a spot in the overhead bin is like a high-stakes game of cutthroat musical chairs. So could anything make flying the friendly skies a bit friendlier? Our producer Danielle Nerman says yes. If airlines made one Simple change. Kat Jones spent a decade working as a WestJet flight attendant and says you wouldn't believe the people brought on board. House plants, body pillows, 
flights coming back from Disneyland were especially challenging. Where am I going to put these lightsabers and massive stuffed animals and Mickey Mouses, you know, coming in on top of the allotted one carry-on, one personal item? Then there was the time someone boarded the plane with a wedding cake. Oh my gosh, here we go. And I'm already looking down the aisle to see, okay, what are, what's the bin situation like? That cake wasn't going in a bin. It needed its own seat. Passengers had to move around, and the flight was delayed by 10 minutes. And that kind of thing can just really screw up the entire day. When flight crews have to play Tetris with carry-on, that can delay the next flight and the one after that. This is a real problem for airlines. Henry Hardevelt is a travel analyst with Atmosphere Research Group. When the airplane is sitting on the ground, it's not making money for the airline. Guests seated in zone three are now welcome to board. Airlines are always trying to streamline the boarding process. That's why United just brought in something called Wilma. Passengers in the window seat board first, then the middle, and last, people in the aisle. We are now boarding all guests in all zones. But if everyone is still looking for space to cram in their carry-on, Hardevelt says there will be delays. If you go back into the 1970s and 80s, airlines would board flights maybe 20 minutes before departure, but uh, we didn't have this jostling for uh, space in the overhead bins. Hardevelt says carry-on is the heart of the problem. Airlines need to give passengers a reason to check their luggage. Peace of mind, like real-time tracking for bags or compensation if you have to wait too long at the carousel. Most importantly, he says airlines need to start charging for carry-on and allow passengers to check their bags for free. People would appreciate this. They would feel less nickeled and dimed. And the people who want the convenience and control would pay to bring their bags on the plane. So I believe that the airline would generate probably the same amount of money or possibly even more. Because less time on the ground means more time in the air. If a flight can shave even a few minutes off boarding, the airline may be able to squeeze in one more flight a day. Uh, and when you apply it by the scale of most midsize and large size airlines, such as WestJet and Air Canada, then that adds up to big revenue. That's good for airlines, but also could be good for us. It also means more flights for us as travelers, more choice, and potentially more low fare seats available. But if airlines change nothing, Hardevelt says boarding delays will carry on and carry-on luggage will continue to be a battle. It's like a Hunger Games uh, environment on the plane and may the odds ever be in your favor of finding a spot for your bag near your seat. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. How about you? Would you check your bags if it was free and skip your carry-on?
Let us know what you think. Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershrude. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. The world's most famous commercial is, arguably, this one by Coca-Cola. I like to teach the world to sing with me. That came out in 1971. Flower power was groovy. Americans were turning against the Vietnam War. And here comes Coke. It wanted to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Was this a low-key anti-war statement? Sure. Maybe. Hard to tell. These days, corporate messaging is not as subtle. No longer can we assume the Earth's resources are limitless. We wrote this in our first catalog in 1972. This month, I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood, and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. The Mets are exiting the field, and a Black Lives Matter shirt left on top of home plate. Companies used to stay out of politics. They didn't want to alienate customers on either side of the aisle. Now, it can be risky to stay quiet. Look at the Israel-Hamas war. More than 200 of the world's biggest companies have put out statements. RBC, BMW, the NFL. Pick an acronym, and it's probably said something about what's happening there. Paul Argenti has studied why companies have changed course. He's a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So, Paul, why are companies feeling more compelled these days to speak up? I think there are a couple of different reasons. One is pressure from employees, particularly younger employees who are urging, uh, especially CEOs, to make comments. And that's been true for at least five or six years, maybe a little bit longer. The second reason is there's now a sense that corporations have more credibility and that they are active players in the world. And therefore, if they weigh in on something, it has significance. And that's come about because of, particularly in the United States, where the government is not as reliable to people, business has taken on a different role. And I think the third part is that there are many leaders who feel passionate about issues. And those three things, you know, have led to the rise in comments from companies. When you say five or six years ago, I mean, that puts us back to, what, 2016, 2017? I mean, what, what kind of things were happening? Why the shift then? Yeah, I think it, particularly in the United States, you know, we have Black Lives Matter. Uh, we have LGBTQ issues. It, the list goes on and on. You get to abortion rights. That becomes an issue. And, of course, most recently, um, the situation in the Middle East has created 
challenges for companies as well. And I think this one is particularly thorny for companies. Why do they do it then? If it's such a thorny issue, why do companies now feel pressure to comment? You know, I think it's like there's like a standard email that comes out now, right? Whether it's from the president of a university or dean of a college or business school or the CEO. Like every time something happens now, they feel compelled to weigh in. And I think there's some logic to that internally to say something to your employees about, we know many of you are upset about this uh, issue that is going on. Uh, and we want to to know that we support you, and and that kind of thing makes sense. When it starts to get thorny is when the company takes a side officially, like signing a petition or weighing in against um, one side or another very strongly. That gets to be a little bit trickier for a company. The Harvard president got into trouble over this very issue. So it's hit university presidents, CEOs, a whole host of people have gotten caught in the, you know, the crossfire on this one. I mean, when you talk about it, it, it feels like there's so many things. I mean, it's like there's this complicated matrix of things that you're walking through, you know, if this, yep. then that. How do you, how do, how are companies navigating their way through this? I think it's not that complicated. You know, whether people use my approach or another approach, what I recommend is, does it have something to do with you? Like your business is in Israel. Um, you're Jewish and you're the CEO of a company, so you feel personally about this. If there's some strategic connection, that's absolutely important and you start there. The second one is, can you do something about it? One of the problems is that companies make statements and then they're kind of caught because there's really nothing they can do, nor do they want to do anything about it. So, you know, companies would weigh in on Black Lives Matter and then you go to look at their board and they have a bunch of white guys on the board, something along those lines. Does does the idea of being inauthentic uh, factor in to this at all? It does. Yeah. I, I think the lack of authenticity is one that can really cripple you, um, you know, because it sounds like you're making a very supportive statement, but you're really not. And there have been companies and, you know, without mentioning names that have taken a position on something controversial and then back down as as pressure comes from more conservative audiences that don't like the position they've taken, and they'll pull out of whatever it is they were involved in. I know one company specifically that did that in relation to an LGBTQ situation, and they got really hammered, as you can imagine, as a result of that. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Someone is going to be against whatever position you're taking, and you have to say, I'm okay with that. I know that's okay. And a lot of companies don't want to displease anyone. And in this situation someone is going to probably not be happy with the position you're taking. Well, you know, earlier you mentioned that one of the reasons, some of the pressure that uh, companies are feeling these days is that they are being looked to to make statements, that they are in some sort of position of moral leadership. Why has this type of, of moral leadership fallen out of the corporate sector? Because it didn't used to be like that. I think, you know, the stature, you, let's go back. So if you go back to the 70s, um, you know, and, and it's more of a Milton Friedman uh, approach that companies were taking. We're just here to make money. We don't get involved in stuff like this. And everybody understood that. That was fine. You then have Reagan and Thatcher coming up with this notion that corporations can do a better job than governments and looking to corporations for answers. And that's the beginning of when this actually starts, because 
now you have corporations taking bigger positions on issues that affect them directly, right? And and issues where they can weigh in and actually make a difference. And then it comes to a head, you know, somewhere in the last five to seven years, as specific issues are are involving companies. And those companies are also at the same time, and particularly in the last five to seven years, the 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 way people look at corporations has changed and become more positive. You put all that together and it's kind of an explosive mix of things that have come together at this time in this place to make companies, particularly in North America, having to weigh in more than they would want to probably. You know, you go online these days and people are commenting on everything. You know, one day they're a Ukrainian war expert, then they're an amateur epidemiologist, then they know everything about submarines. Is what we're seeing right now kind of like the corporate version of being extremely online? Um, I think it is is a function of well, there's there's a couple of things that come to mind that I think is really important. One is that, you know, before social media, before you had this megaphone, you know, it wasn't possible for everyone to be a media company in the way that they are today. You know, we would leave that to the CBC or NPR or, you know, the whatever corporation was responsible for uh, giving the news. Now an individual has the same ability to broadcast their their thoughts about things and get others to join them. So yeah, I do think it's part of that. That's certainly part of what has happened. And the other part of it is that, you know, people have become more polarized as they have been able to take those sides more publicly. They may have had those thoughts before, but they weren't able to express it in quite the same way. So now you've got this incredible megaphone for everyone to weigh in on. And that's led to the problem that we're talking about right now. So then, Paul, where do you think this is going? Do you think we're gonna, companies are going to continue to go further and further down this path? Or do you think at some point the pendulum might swing back the other way? I think companies are going to get smarter about understanding that you have to have a communication strategy for this ahead of time rather than trying to deal with it as each issue comes up. And that's happening. That's happened with lots and lots of companies, certainly in the United States and in Canada. I I think the second thing that will happen is people will realize that corporations aren't very good at being able to weigh in on political issues. They are not political entities. They're businesses that have to make money and, you know, please a variety of constituencies. And they're not the best advocates for these kinds of things. And stop asking them to play that role. And then the third thing is, you know, you, you will have leaders who will be more thoughtful about understanding what is happening and trying to be more nuanced in the way they approach this in terms of communication. Like they will tell employees ahead of time, we're not going to get involved. You need to know that. And here's why. And when we do get involved, we'll make sure that you know about that. Um, And those kinds of things will lead to a a de-escalation, I think. But that's still a few years off. I, I think it's still a learning curve for most companies. Well, Paul Argenti, thanks for all that. Thank you. That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline, the fighting kangaroo Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Habershrude. Thanks for listening. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.